Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we're joined by Owen Matthews. He is a brilliant historian and journalist and author of An Impeccable Spy, Richard Zorgay, Stalin's Master Agent, which is the reason for having him on the show. To my mind, it's one of the best books about intelligence and about a um, I, not even a Cold War agent. This is pre-Cold War, but a Soviet uh, intelligence officer who I don't think it's too far afield to say changed the course of history uh, and got away with some extraordinary feats where other lesser men would have failed or, or stumbled. It's a page turner, but I don't actually like the term page turner because this book is so chock-a-block with detail and research, including from the archives of Soviet military or Russian military intelligence, I should say. Uh, they really kind of paints a, a beautiful kind of atmospheric picture of what it was like at the time, uh, whether it's in interwar Germany or Shanghai in the early 30s or Tokyo in the late 30s and, and early 40s. Oh, and it's great to have you on, on the program. And I think most listeners of this show will have at least a nodding acquaintance with who uh, Zorge was. But if you could just briefly describe the character of this book uh, and, and what he managed to accomplish under what circumstances, I think then we, we, we can get into a fun back and forth about you know, him defying the odds, given some very severe personality or character flaws, uh, and also just his general history, which would have militated against him rising to this position of prominence in the annals of, of Soviet uh, intelligence. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for, for having me. Richard Zorge, he was a, uh, a very bad man who became a, an extremely brilliant spy. Perhaps those two things are one is necessary for the other. Uh, we can discuss that later. But uh, he was a German communist who spied for uh, Stalin's military intelligence um, in Shanghai and then Tokyo, most brilliantly. And um, he was one of that generation of angry young men who came out of World War I, disillusioned, disgusted, furious that they had been betrayed by the old world, convinced that the old world needed to be broken, a new world had to be built. And uh, just like Adolf Hitler, in fact, um, the wellspring of his revolt against the world was that uh, traumatic experience in the trenches where he was in fact wounded uh, three times, once on the Western Front and twice on the Eastern. And uh, he joined a very large, heterodox, rootless community of communists working in Moscow in the 1920s and was recruited by the father, one could say, actually, of modern foreign intelligence practice, uh, a guy called Jan Berzin, who was uh, charged by, uh, to, by, with putting together uh, a professional, truly professional worldwide intelligence outfit. And he basically hunted among the remnants of the Comintern, the Communist Internationals Intelligence Service. Uh, there were various sort of freelance operators that sort of chaotically uh, were providing intelligence around the world for the Soviet Union. And Vyazin actually formed um, in his fourth department, which of course became the uh, the GIU ultimately, a cadre of very dedicated, very effective uh, undercover officers of whom uh, Zorge was one. And uh, the secret, I think, of his success of Zorge's espionage career was that uh, he uh, never really stole secrets. Although, I mean, he did steal some secrets, certainly at the beginning of his career. But mostly he was not, he was a charmer. Mm. He was a journalist. He was exceptionally well-informed. 
He was a very fast learner. But most of all, he was actually able to make people, especially his own countrymen, Germans, talk to him, share secrets. And ultimately, the great success of his greatest monument, the Tokyo Spiring, which uh, successfully identified very close to the exact date of the start of Operation Barbarossa and attempted to warn Stalin that uh, Hitler was planning an invasion. That intelligence coup was accomplished by what you would call a virtuous circle, I think, of uh, intelligence uh, with Zorge at its center, because he was undercover in Tokyo, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. He, Richard Zorge, his birth name, went to Tokyo as Richard Zorge, German-born journalist, which is exactly what he was, among other things, of course, but his true identity was never concealed in his uh, spying days in Tokyo. And he was very quickly able to ingratiate himself to with the German community by being exceptionally well-informed about Japanese political affairs. Now, how did he get that way? He got that way because the fourth department sent, uh, encouraged him to recruit a young Japanese journalist, a communist, who was on a relatively well-trodden career path from foreign correspondent to foreign affairs commentator to think tanker to government advisor. So by uh, the peak of Richard Zorge's intelligence career in 1940, his major source, informant, colleague, fellow spy, agent, Hotsumi Ozaki, is uh, in daily conference with the closest inner circle of the prime minister's office uh, at what they call the, the breakfast group and getting all the secrets of the, uh, of the discussions at the very senior levels, most senior levels of uh, Japanese civilian policymaking, not, not necessarily military policymaking, but certainly civilian policymaking. So um, Ozaki is sitting at, you know, having breakfast with the prime minister's closest advisors, um, telling Zorge the inner track of uh, the political gossip of the day. Zorge is at that moment a, an advisor to the German ambassador, who is his personal friend, and he is getting inside knowledge of the strategic debates in Berlin. It's, of course, at that point, uh, Germany and Japan are allies against, um, in the not, not yet actually against, uh, against America or the Soviet Union, but certainly they, they have a serious military alliance. Uh, Zorge is able to pass that information on to his agent, uh, Hotsumi Ozaki, as well as, of course, informing Moscow of everything. So Ozaki is boosting... Zorge's career and his standing in the eyes of his German colleagues with all this fantastic inside information. Zorge is boosting Ozaki's standing in the eyes of his Japanese government colleagues by giving him all this information about uh, Western strategic thinking, certainly uh, Nazi strategic thinking. So between them, they have this extraordinary mill of information. A lot of it is actually going backwards and forwards, so, which is why when Zorge was ultimately arrested. So it's a bit of a plot spoiler, but he's arrested, ultimately arrested and hanged. But um, ultimately, at the time of his arrest, there was considerable confusion as to who exactly he was working for. Yeah. Was he working for the Germans or was he working for the Soviets? The answer was, of course, actually, all along, there's no question that he was a double agent. He was a loyal soldier of the Russian Revolution. He was a serving Soviet intelligence officer. That's in no kind of doubt. But in order to facilitate that brilliant career, he actually spread information around and was a one-man kind of uh, mill of uh, sort of one-man 
exchange of, of information uh, backwards and forwards between the Germans and the Japanese. And all of it was going up the tree to Moscow. Yeah. You started by saying, you know, he was a bad man. And one of the things that, that strikes me in, in your book is in spite of his rather notorious proclivities, whether it's uh, sack artistry, I mean, he slept with virtually every woman who, who came across his path, including the wife of the German ambassador that you alluded to, who he became intimate friends with. And he was a notorious alcoholic as well. I mean, he would get into these sort of blind, drunken rages. In some instances, telling Nazi officers how terrible the Third Reich was and his ex, professing his admiration for the Soviet Union. And they sort of wrote it off as sort of <laughs> Zorge just being on another bender. They didn't take it seriously. I mean, in other words, he, he often would practice quite bad tradecraft and yet somehow got away with it through the force either of his charisma or his intelligence or his resourcefulness. Yeah. Yes, that's certainly true. And uh, although the book is called An Impeccable, my book is called An, An Impeccable Spy, because that's actually picking up a quote from Kim Philby, who said of Richard Zorge, his work was impeccable. But actually, um, Philby is wrong. His, from a point of view of tradecraft, his work was very, very far from impeccable. Yeah. He took all sorts of extraordinary risks throughout his whole career. And it's not really, uh, there's not really a sensible explanation for why he was able to get away with it so often. Uh, apart from the fact that he just they seemed to have the, the devil's own luck. But also, he was, uh, in many ways, there were actually uh, some, some quite interesting parallels between the way Philby interacted with his colleagues and his person and Philby's persona and that of Zorge, because both of them were very extrovert, very gregarious alcoholics. And everybody knew them as the life of the party. Philby, of course, was a sort of died in the wool member of the British establishment, which kind of helped. But Zorge, in a strange way, was a member of a slightly different establishment. He was, in fact, the son of a banker. So he's perfectly well-heeled and well-educated and sort of from a bourgeois Berlin family. Although, of course, he was born in Baku in, this, in the Russian Empire yeah. and spent the first five years of his life there. But his father was a banker, his, um, a German banker. He was uh, relatively socially well-heeled. But uh, if Philby's in to high government circles was his social acceptability and having gone to the right school and university and so on. Zorge's in was uh, his service in World War One, And it's a story that actually comes up again and again and again in his in his career, whether it's chatting up to German officers in, who are advisors of the to the uh, Kuomintang government in China, nationalist government in China, or whether it's the uh, German ambassador, uh, Eugen Ott in Tokyo. This deep camaraderie that unites men of his generation, because one way or another, they have all had that experience of fighting the world in, in, in the trenches. And he was you know, uh, ruggedly handsome. He was a war hero. He had a limp, or his left leg was full of shrapnel. His fingers were partly severed by shrapnel on the Eastern Front. So he had this you know any German that he came across every any German man that he came across of his generation he was able to instantly make that connection and disarm them by just being drunk gregarious and you know generally fun and in that sort of vulnerability in other words you know when you're drunk you're out of control people it was actually a very subtle and profound kind of cover yeah People can't believe if you are, you know, sort of Vladimir Putin style, sort of teetotal and sort of tight lipped and sort of with, you know, sort of darting eyes and sort of sitting back in your, in your chair. Like people think like 
what a creepy guy. Uh, he's probably a spy. If you're just sort of, you know, shouting down the table, like as Zorge literally did, did I say shouting down the table? I mean, like standing on the table and shouting to a party <laughs> literally made up of SS officers in the bar of the Imperial Hotel on the night of Operation Barbarossa. He gets up on the table and shouts like, this is the end for your Hitler. You know, Stalin's going to show you, sh sh show him... This is the biggest mistake. This is going to be a disaster. And no one can believe that a person who behaves like that could actually be a spy. Yeah. He hides in plain sight under his own identity. He's outrageously, he, he behaves outrageously. And that's his, uh, and that's his cover. I'm not sure whether that kind of thing would uh, work in today's world of human intelligence, but certainly in the 30s, it seemed to be very effective. And you're speaking of that sort of camaraderie that, that was inculcated in the World War I generation, whichever side you wound up on, later on, whether it was pro-Nazi or pro-communist. I mean, you, you bring this out in the book in sort of the 1918 to 1923 period, where you had the German communists or socialists street brawling with the Fry Corps, you know, the, the kind of military class precursor to the brown shirts. Zorge very much involved in these fights himself. I mean, at one point he was trying to run guns, I think, to Berlin during the, um, the, the Spartacist rebellion. Uh, there's a kind of narcissism of the tiny difference here, right? I mean, if you came back from the front, and all of your illusions about the so-called liberal world had been shattered, and you were looking to sort of tear things up and start all over again, you effectively had two choices. There was fascism and there was communism. And even though these two were pitted against each other for, for much of this history, even though infamously uh, the Hitler-Stalin pact kind of put paid to the, the idea that they were total adversaries. But for much of this history, there was this sort of fluidity between the two totalitarianisms. And it seemed that, that Sorge's talent, as it were, was, was to kind of navigate, to move back and forth quite seamlessly and to, to charm and to ingratiate himself among those who were true believers and yet somehow found in him a humanity or a commonality that was rare at the time. Well, that's true. I mean, the, well, there's two things to be said. I mean, firstly, the, the reason why Berezin believed and correctly that Zorge would be such a fantastic agent was because there was, a, quite apart from his personal skills, he was quite simply just German, mm. Aryan German, not Jewish German. Yeah. There were lots of German Jews working in, many of them also quite successful. But uh, if, if you're going to send an agent into a, to infiltrate the Nazi German embassy, and it, when he was in fact recruited, the Nazis had not come to power, but clearly, it was clearly that they were, 1932, 1933, they were actually consolidating their grip on power. Zorge was German, he was of that uh, generation, as you rightly said, and he has this, uh, the, the, the chops uh, as a war hero, but also he has this passion indeed for, for communism that is partly intellectual, partly I think there's a, a John le Carré writing about uh, uh, Richard Zorge very rightly points out is that actually communism was in many ways a kind of an excuse. It was a sort of Jesuitical higher calling that allowed Zorge to basically do whatever he liked because he had convinced himself that he was on the side of the angels. In fact, like, although you know, he considered himself a soldier, his battlefield was in sort of dance halls and brothels and nightclubs and restaurants. And he was, you know, uh, although he was personally quite actually modest and ascetic in his lifestyle, he loved to party, but none of that actually shook his confidence. And he loved to play the, the bourgeois because actually fundamentally he was a bourgeois. Yeah. The fact that he was you know, both a communist 
but undercover as a fun-loving bourgeois basically gave him carte blanche to behave exactly as he liked and always tell himself, yes, but I'm doing this for the sake of the international proletariat. So there's a sort of interesting kind of dichotomy there, you know, on a, on a, on a profound personal level is that he, you know, cares deeply about the future of the proletariat, but he actually is in this sort of uh, high-living party guy. And the, the the difference between, I mean, the, the, well, the vanity of small differences to which you alluded is personally expressed in the personality and career of Zorge's radio officer. Max Clausens begins as a sailor in the Merchant Marine, becomes a communist, is trained as a radio operator, is sent to Shanghai, then to Tokyo. Uh, but Clausen then is set up in business by the fourth department. And it t- turns out that he's actually really quite good at business. <laughs> and his wife <laughs> is actually, you know, kind of likes that. And she goes on the little trips to, to Hong Kong to buy fur coats and stuff. And she, you know, on the way out to Hong Kong, she takes, she has microfilms hidden literally in her brassiere. Uh, and she's also has, you know, cash that she's basically embezzled or stashed away from this business that's funded by Moscow and just put it in, a, in an account at the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, by the way. They probably still have that, have that cash. <laughs> but, uh, and the, uh, so, you know, towards 1940, in the wake of the Nazi-Soviet pact, Clausen realizes that actually, wait a second, hang on, Hitler is a socialist. <laughs> He is a socialist. He's a national socialist. That's what Nazi stands for. But, and actually, he's sort of admiring of, you know, the, the mass employment schemes and the discipline and order. So actually, literally, in, the, in Zorge's closest circle, his literal deputy and radio man, who was a dedicated communist, kind of decides that he likes the Nazis uh, because they're not that different. And a dedicated radio man, but but I mean, isn't it the case Clausen and Zorge met by pure happenstance by one of these sort of farcical operational calamities of the Fourth Department in which, you know, you had Alexander Ulanovsky, who's a character in my book, sent as resident to Shanghai in, I think, 1931. Zorge is his deputy. And yet the, the outgoing resident refuses to leave because Jan Berzin thinks that this guy's been compromised and says, you have to come home. I think your your network is blown. He says, no, 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 no. I'm going to stay here until I can convince you it's not. So you have two competing residenturas in Shanghai in 1931. Clausen belongs to the outgoing one. And against all operational rules and tradecraft, Zorge and Ulanovsky and his residency are liaising with the other guys. I mean, it's, it's sort of this Keystone Cops kind of affair. And yet out of it becomes this rather fateful collaboration and ultimately a fatal one, because as you say, Clausen ends up going Nazi <laughs> at the end in Japan. Right. And uh, also uh, Clausen actually starts to sabotage the work of Zorge because he uh, obviously transmitting Clausen's brilliance. And in fact, the reason why he's so crucial to the working, to the operational side of the, of Zorge spiring in Tokyo between 1933 and 1941 when it's wound up, is that he manages to establish radio contact with Vladivostok, they call it Wiesbaden. But actually that's, at that time, it was actually a rather technically challenging thing to do with a small portable radio. And he did it by actually literally wiring an entire floor of the house into an antenna. He literally, literally like, sort of put it around the edges of the ceiling. So the house became literally an antenna. And he did it for houses of all the other members of the group. And he would drive around Tokyo with his radio equipment and either show up and uh, every house had like an antenna, it had a battery he'd, he'd set up and he would transmit Zorge's messages. But obviously this is an extremely dangerous thing to do, especially if you're doing it on a weekly basis and very risky. And uh, as they didn't know until 
right at the end when they were in fact ultimately put on trial. But what they didn't know was the Japanese immediately intercepted the signal. They were monitoring the Clausen's radio transmissions right from the get-go. Hmm. And in an incredibly Japanese way, they were basically just spent eight years transcribing these random four-number groups, the code. You know, thousands of pages of incomprehensible code. They didn't know the key, but didn't stop them from like sitting there and transcribing it you know, day after day. So they had like the entire oeuvre of everything that Clausen sent. And then finally they got the code book and then decoded it all. But the point is that because it was so dangerous and because it was such a risky thing, towards the end, Clausen actually stops transmitting Zorge's messages in full. He, transmit, he transmits them late or he doesn't transmit them at all. So partly out of fear, partly because he's lost his... Uh, you know, lost his communist faith. He, um, Clausen, actually sort of comes very close to sabotaging the work of the of the whole of the whole ring, and that's really the the tragedy of Zorge is that actually two things go wrong for him. Uh, one of them is that his closest technical ally Clausen is sabotaging and not transmitting these extra- extraordinarily important sort of history changing moments, and when he finally does it, uh, when they get through, Moscow Center ignores them. Yeah. And that's really Moscow's, tra- Zorge's tragedy is that he's the, probably the greatest, most successful spy in the world in terms of his, the penetration of his intelligence, the, how well functioning his uh, firing was. But at the same time, he was the most traduced and the most ignored spy in history. Now, what, in, to, your, to your mind, what accounts for, I mean, various historians have weighed in on, on Stalin's paranoia and the reason for his ignoring credible intelligence. Why do you think Zorge, given that level of penetration, I mean, into the, uh, essentially the, the, the heart of the German foreign office or, or foreign ministry, why was, was this stuff simply dismissed as, you know, either scuttlebutt at the least or at the worst, purposeful disinformation, compromised Soviet assets, telling lies to protect the Nazis. Why was Zorge traduced, as you say? Well, I would say it's probably the most interesting thing that, that I uncovered in, in the course of my personal research. And uh, it's the most, uh, it's obviously the debate about why, about, about why Stalin chose to ignore the multiple warnings, why he was so unprepared for Operation Barbarossa is an old one and a long one. But the, in microcosm, you see very clearly with the Zorge story exactly how it worked. And it's kind of a lesson for our times as well, actually, because it's just an exercise in groupthink. It's an exercise in selective information, and selective information leads to terrible decisions. And namely, when by the time the Operation Barbarossa is uh, being planned, which basically begins in the fall of 1940, after the failure of Operation Sea Lion, which is Hitler's planned invasion of the, of the British Isles, the Luftwaffe is unable to uh, establish operational air supremacy over the North Sea. The land invasion is called off in 1940. Hitler turns his attention to Germany. Now, the chief of Soviet military intelligence is a guy called General Philippe Golikov. The previous six chiefs of Soviet military intelligence had all been shot, including Jan Berezin. So if you're like the seventh person in that job and your six predecessors have been shot, your priority is very much not to get shot. (laughs) And and you realize that, of course, why did they get shot? I mean, various reasons, but I mean, mostly the paranoia of the purges. But very importantly, the way to stay alive is to tell the boss exactly what he wants to hear. Hmm. And this kind of poisons the whole 
intelligence machine in the root because it's already been crippled. I mean, it's sort of almost like he's sort of Oedipus. You know, he likes sort of the Soviet Union on the eve of the biggest military confrontation in human history essentially just blinds itself. It like sort of puts out its own eyes yeah. between 1937 and 1939 by recalling every single agent that it has from the field. And the vast majority of them are either put in the gulag or shot just because of paranoia. Zorge exceptionally survives in the field because at first he, he agrees to return when he's summoned, but then doesn't because of technical reasons. Hmm. And then when he does, when he is ready to return, uh, the guy who ordered him to return has been shot and his successor has also been shot. So, you know, everyone's kind of forgotten, like, what, who, you know, Zorge, who are you? Like, and, and, and by the time it, it, it gets, you know, so Golikov is working with a much reduced agent network and crucially the information that he's getting is filtered by Golikov before he gets to Stalin. It's basically systematically, and this is what you see in the archives, you, you, you see the reports from Zorge, you see the reports from, Zorge is in fact just one of 19 agents to warn or to provide crucial information about the upcoming plans for Operation Barbarossa. Uh, the other 18 are part of members of the so-called Rota Capella, the Red Choir in Spiring, in the, 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 they have an agent in the uh, German embassy in, in Warsaw. They have an agent in the, in the Luftwaffe headquarters. They have an agent in the, in the Ministry of Economy. They have an agent in the, in the embassy in, in Athens, etc. So all, the, all these agents, including, including Zorge, are sending the sort of streams of bits of information to Golikov. And Golikov is systematically filtering them because very rarely when you read these agents, agent, agent reports, especially with the benefit of hindsight, they never say, you know, urgent flash, Hitler is going to invade you on 23rd of June. I mean, no, that's that, 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 July. That's not how it works. What it, um, they're always hedged. Every agent report that ever comes in is hedged. Like this person says this, but that. There's always a hedge. And systematically, Golikov takes the hedge. Like he filters out the warning and reports to Stalin exactly what the guy, what, what the boss wants to hear, and that is that there is not going to be an invasion. And that sort of echo chamber, it's very similar, in fact, to what, Bud, what uh, uh, Bob Woodward describes in his books about the run-up to the Iraq war. Mm. You have a group of people in the room who are, who are all convinced of something, and they're being fed, until they have an intelligence network, which is basically geared towards reinforcing their fundamentally mistaken idea. Yeah. It's a classic example of, of groupthink, but in this case, with a very heavy dose of personal control and paranoia, but from the boss himself. Mm. And I suppose if, if there's a kind of um, hysterical logic to the regime at the time, I mean, if, if you've purged Burzin uh, for whatever it was, counter-revolutionary activity or terrorism or Trotskyism, then it stands to reason that everybody he recruited and he personally recruited Zorge, is, is, is therefore compromised too. Um, so why listen to anybody who's feeding you stuff from that generation of sort of wraiths of the fourth department? But yeah, I mean, it, it is extraordinary to think that it, you know, at various points in history, both pre-Cold War and then during World War II and, and post-Cold War, there but for the, the paranoia and ideological groupthink in Moscow, the intelligence apparatus stood up by the Soviets was rather extraordinary and capable of, you know, incredible deeds 
Uh, and they, they would have got away with it too, because Western counterintelligence or, well, I, I mean, you know, Zorge's network, I suppose, was invigilated by the Japanese, as you pointed out, but they still couldn't crack the code until they they found somebody who was effectively a double agent within his own residency. They couldn't find the transmitter. The transmitter, yeah. But yeah, no, it, it, I mean, and, and that's, that's kind of the leitmotif, I guess, of not just your book, but just most of this this history is that the Russians were really good at this stuff, but they were their own worst enemy, right? Right. And you, you get, again, the, the other extraordinary thing about this whole period and about the tragedy of Zorgane that I got a very clear sense of, or I got a very vivid sense, I'm not sure it was clear, but it was a vivid sense of um, the workings of the intelligence apparatus in the late 30s and early 40s, is that you have an extraordinary paradox, which doesn't make any sense to us as Westerners, is, as you rightly said, you know, Zorge was not trusted because he was a which is which means a person who did not come back. Is the is to come back. He was somebody who'd stayed in the field exceptionally. Nobody really knew why or how. Uh, there were some reports on the file that suggested that he was channeling disinf- enemy disinformation without any kind of basis for that accusation. The guy who wrote that report was the shortest lived of the directors of the fourth department. He, he I think he, he hung on for for, for, for a matter of like 10 days or so uh, before he was shot in 1938. But the, uh, the point is that he was not believed because he was a Nivazarashenians and his information was discounted. But at the same time, and this is the crucial point, he was believed and not believed. Why? Because the people who are working in the fourth department, including this guy called Boris Ignatovich Goods, who actually lived till 103, the age of 103 or 108, uh, and was actually literally my wife's family's next door neighbor for 60 years in central Moscow. But this guy, Boris Ignatovich Goods, uh, starts his career in the NKVD, later the KGB, then transfers to the military to military intelligence. His, his recollection is incredibly telling. He says, yeah, we, we knew that there were various sort of lipochki. Now, lipa is a very telling word. It means like it's almost a childish word. It means like a little lie. It's like a, a little white lie. Mm-hmm. So all of these intelligence professionals knew that the purge, the people who'd been purged, were basically innocent. Yeah. That they'd been set up by quota, uh, by this web of lipochki, of little lies, that caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and basically sort of decapitated these, the, the Soviet army, the, the Red Army and its intelligence service. So they knew that probably Zorge was innocent, just like all the other guys were innocent. Mm. So, so at the same time, if they were chose to believe the words of someone who'd been branded as a potential double agent, then they themselves would be shot. It was this impossible, ridiculous, grotesque, nightmarish situation, and basically impossible to operate a serious intelligence service on that basis, is that everybody is constantly covering their asses. If up to 1937, they're actually sort of interested in you know, some ser- you know, serious intelligence work and building networks and so on, after, now after the Great Purge in 1937, everyone is just interested in staying alive and that's why nobody wants to go out on a limb and tell stalin wait a second you know these people are you know telling us the web of information is so compelling that you know you're just wrong the soviet union is about to be invaded yeah uh, but, but no one goes out on that limb well it certainly didn't help the case that i think the allies that the certainly uh, the uk was also feeding moscow a warning that the Germans were coming. So if you have your own intelligence network, 
compiling intelligence, which is corroborating that which your capitalist enemies are feeding you. Um, and that only kind of heightens the paranoia and, and suspicion in which you hold your, your spies, yeah? Right. And, and, and also, there's actually something, something very crucial to understand, and that is that Stalin was not naive in any sense. I mean, he was extraordinarily famously suspicious. He was, um, there's, there's a theory that he was duped by Hitler, um, that Hitler pulled the wool out of his eyes, Hitler claimed in personal letters that he sent to Stalin that he was withdrawing forces to the east of Poland and, and towards Romania in order to save them from, to protect them from British aerial bombardment. I mean, all that may be true, but the bottom line of Stalin's behavior is, as Molotov very vehemently argued in his memoirs, is like, we always knew that the Soviet Union was going to be invaded. We never expected war not to come. We didn't think that it would happen exactly when it happened, but we were certainly prepared for the eventuality of war and our entire diplomacy and our entire military strategy and our crucially our defensive strategy was geared towards deferring the moment deferring the net what they regarded in Molotov's view as the inevitable by not provoking the Germans in any in any way yeah Stalin was undoubtedly unprepared the Soviet army was completely caught off guard but at the same time I don't think it's completely true to say that Stalin was not expecting a German invasion he was just not expecting the Soviet invasion a German invasion exactly then well wasn't wasn't his line I mean I think there's a quote to some effect he says um you know don't worry, Hitler's going to betray us, but we'll betray him first. You know, the idea of getting your double cross in before the, the other side can do. You know, frankly, if you if you look at the common turn policy in 1933, branding the German social democrats as social fascists and you know the moderate wing of fascism and so on, uh, disallowing the German Communist Party to make common cause with the social democrats, it was very much founded in the same sort of cynical prognostication, right? You know, Nazism, let, let them get their last gasp and let them, let them devour our other enemies and then it'll be our day. That, that's correct. And, and also, if you, if you think about, like, if you see the world from, you know, the, from the Kremlin Palace in from 1939 to 1941, Hitler's going to attack someone. Right. If you're Stalin, you want him to attack Britain. If you're Britain, you want him to attack Russia. You want him to attack Stalin. <laughs> yeah. And that's why he's so literally on, on the day of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, Anthony Eden, future future Foreign Secretary and future Prime Minister of Britain, Anthony Eden, as a, a young Foreign Office Minister, is literally in Moscow trying to negotiate with Stalin some kind of pact, while Stalin is negotiating with Hitler. And his calculation in 1939 is that he wants to create a buffer zone and make nice with the Germans. And in fact, strangely enough, it's actually been a policy of the Soviet Union right from the beginning, like almost immediately after the revolution from the 1920s, from the early 1920s, the German army is banned from maneuvers, from military buildup, from creating an air force and so on by the Treaty of Versailles. They do it in the Soviet Union yeah. because the Soviet Union needs cash and needs gold. And it's supplying the Germans with aircraft. Ironically, the tactics of blitzkrieg you know the combination of some devastating tactical aviation and sort of uh, motorized infantry you know armored attacks followed up by motorized infantry and so on and you know blitzkrieg is developed on the plains of belarus that's where they practice it and in fact you know they get to do it for real of course a few years later but you know and there's a whole generation of german officers who have been trained alongside their Soviet counterparts. Well, the, the, another defector from the Fourth Department, Walter Kravitsky, who wrote a memoir, um, I think in the uh, in the late 30s, 
in Stalin's secret service, predicted the Hitler-Stalin pact on the basis of the conversations he was having in Moscow at the time in the early 30s uh, with, among others, Karl Roddick, saying, look, after the Night of the Long Knives, where, where Hitler essentially consolidates his power by eliminating any internal Nazi opposition to his reign, Stalin really kind of admired him. <laughs> there, there was a kind of pathological kinship, uh, at least in Stalin's own mind, that this is a guy I, I can do business with, and this is a guy I should seek to emulate, which transcended all kind of ideological doctrine. And Kravitsky's thesis was actually Stalin was looking for a deal with Hitler for many years before one actually materialized. And, and each time there was some kind of overture from Moscow to Berlin, Hitler would bat it away until finally Hitler decided to accept. So again, you know, this is the sort of weird area of, of kind of fluid history, if you like, where again, coming back to Zorgay, the topic of this discussion, the navigability from one totalitarian mindset to the other on the, the shared premise of whatever you want to call it, um, kind of pathological desire for one man or one party rule, the simple idea that you can get what you want by the application of brute force, that Western liberal democracies are dupes and fools and can be easily gulled with a little bit of diplomacy or simply negotiation on what they believe is their own terms. I mean, th there was this kind of weird nexus between these two powers, which, I mean, in the conventional wisdom now in the 21st century, you know, the Soviet Union helped win World War II, vanquished Hitlerism and fascism and, and all the rest of it. But I mean, as you point out, there was this um, this kind of quiet sort of policy of, of actually allowing Germany to rearm prior to the rise of fascism and then under fascism, simply letting them take over most of Europe under the terms of, of a, of a non-aggression and then friendship pact. And then when it became too late or after you had kind of created or fashioned this rod for your own back, then suddenly finding yourself at war with somebody who ought to have been your enemy from the very beginning. Well, ought to have been your enemy. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to, to say ought to have been your enemy because, of course, if you look back in the 1920s, the whole genesis of of this sort of German-Soviet cooperation, you know, began under under Weimar. Yeah. And the Bolshevik Republic actually was desperately economically crippled after the Civil War. It wasn't really until sort of the, the, the end of the, the second five-year plan, um, the great industrialization drive, that the Soviet Union had developed any kind of serious modern armaments capability uh, at all. So, I mean, they, they didn't really have the luxury of choosing their enemies. Mm. Their survival was dependent on not being attacked and they were able, and they were insisting, and, and that, that's really the, the logic of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, even though actually by the time you get to 1939, ironically, the Soviet army is actually much bigger and technically actually has more armor and equipment than the German army in 1939, strangely enough. So, uh, but nonetheless, they know that they're not battle-hardened, they're not trained, etc. And so, so it's it's about you know saving their backsides, saving the Soviets' backsides from attack at all at all costs, and knowing that you know Britain and America would do anything to turn German aggression towards the Soviet Union and trying to avert that. Mm. But there's another larger point about this whole period, and was what what, make, what makes the the whole Zorge story so fascinating. Sort of giddyingly interesting and sort of seizing of the seizes the imagination because what he's dealing with is a world. The world in 1940 is a world where the major players of World War II have not yet entered World War II. Mm. 
and they could enter on either side. Yeah. That's what's so strange about it. It's literally for the first two years of World War II that Stalin and Hitler are allies, and Hitler and, and Stalin is providing an enormous amount of material uh, going through the, including as a conduit from Asia, by the way, through the Soviet Union, and also crucially the United States. Mm. And what people tend to forget is that actually there was a very large faction, particularly on the civilian side of Japanese politics. The civilian side, of course, was much weaker than the military side. But suddenly there were many civilians and senior government figures who were very strongly against war with the uh, United States and with Britain. And there were negotiations right up until the last minute for a kind of non-aggression pact with the um, with the United States, right up to Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And the logic of Pearl Harbor is predicated on another key strategic debate. And that is, is Japan going to attack the Soviet Union? Or is it going to, in other words, plan north, because they're already very heavily engaged in, in Chinese Manchuria. So do they just sort of strike up and take very thinly populated, thinly defended Siberia from the Soviets? Or do they strike with the army? That's the army's plan. They're already in China, therefore they want to expand their theater, their theater operations beyond Manchuria into Siberia. And then you have the Navy's plan, the Japanese Imperial Navy, because uh, obviously by definition they are in boats <laughs> they want to get in their boats and they want to take the great sort of imperial fortress of singapore they want to take the uh, uh the oil fields of, of batavia and so on so they have um indonesia modern day indonesia the dutch east indies and ultimately that debate is settled by a really basic practical question and it's something that zorge is actually after his debacle with failing to convince stalin about a worn Stalin about Barbarossa, failing to convince Stalin to heed his warning about Barbarossa. His major triumph is that he's able to piece together the Japanese strategic thinking about Plan North or Plan South. Is he going to, are the Japanese going to attack Stalin or are they going to attack the British and the Americans? And the key strategic factor is, as so often in war, devastatingly banal and practical, and it's just oil. Mm. They are running out of oil. Japan obviously has no oil. China, Manchuria has no oil. Ironically, of course, Siberia has you know a shed load of oil, but nobody knows that in nineteen. Nobody knows that in nineteen forty-one, right? And therefore, it has to be planned south. They have to get that Indonesian oil supply, otherwise, their war machine is going to just grind to a halt, and that. That's the consideration in the summer of 1941 that Zorge is able to report back to his bosses in Moscow. And this time he is believed that Japan is definitely going to attack Southeast Asia, which they do. And the result of that is uh, of that very crucial information is that by October of 1941, Stalin is able to transfer dozens of divisions, in fact, the five army corps from the defense of Siberia, knowing that they're not going to be attacked by the Japanese, to the defense of Moscow, which, as we now know in retrospect, is in fact really pretty much where Hitler lost World War II. Yeah. It was outside Moscow. Stalingrad was where the, where the, the war started going in Russia's, in Russia's favor. But by not taking Moscow, Hitler basically lost, lost the war. He lost the momentum on Operation Barbarossa. Winter came in. And that was uh, that, and that was the fatal error. But Moscow was defended by troops from Siberia that were liberated thanks to that piece of intelligence, but from Rick Zorgin. 
So this raises the next question, which is in 41, Zorge, the, the man who refused to come home is, is suddenly believed. Is that simply because clearly he had been right about Barbarossa? He had proven his mettle and his worth and the paranoia and suspicion had given way to simple survival instinct and pragmatism. We Maybe we should listen to this guy now. Well, that's true. I mean, like a, a hundred divisions crossing your border is a fairly sort of unignorable <laughs> yeah. corroborative evidence that this guy was right in the end. I mean, basically you're right. I mean, I think it's a little bit simplistic. The truth is closer to the situation which I described a little bit earlier. This is that this kind of weird fog of double think is that you can believe someone and not believe someone at the same time. Right. And in this particular case, Zorge and his sub-agents had created such a, an impressive network of local Japanese informants that he was able not just to, uh, to, to report on the sort of various gossip from the, uh, from the high councils um, of Japanese state, but also actually like on the sort of nitty gritty of troop movements and manufacturing of sort of Mitsubishi planes and sort of Kawasaki planes, you know, all of these, you know, the, those nuts and bolts of the war, which you know, were the troops getting summer shorts or were they getting overcoats? The very granular detail, which actually is, is kind of the stuff of military intelligence, actually. That's how you really build a, a convincing picture. And you don't necessarily have to like believe someone. The Moscow Center is constantly asking him for like, don't give us opinions, don't, you know, we'll, we'll give us the raw information, give us data, 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 data. And yes, he was believed because I think he was able to convincingly provide enough data to prove that the Japanese were definitively going for Plan South. And no doubt they had other sources too that were corroborating Zorge's intelligence. Not in Japan, they didn't, no, no. I mean, they, there is an interesting kind of side story, which is actually slightly less important than it might immediately seem, is that actually the Soviets had quite good success in cracking Japanese military codes in Manchuria and actually were able to listen into Japanese military traffic on on Benito Zorge, by the way. But actually, um, it was actually just sort of mostly, mostly sort of local tactical stuff. It was not... Uh, on Japan, they essentially had one major source, mm. and it was Zorge. On that note, um, I want to uh, sort of tease to our listeners what else you might be working on at the moment. I mean, this was a, an extraordinary and fascinating, not just kind of overview of, of the career of uh, Zorge, but, but also, you know, mid 20th century history through the eyes of intelligence gathering, which is, I think, one of the more edifying ways of studying all history. What can we expect from you in the near future? Uh, well, actually, I'm just finishing. In fact, I'm maybe even tonight, I will finish the third volume of a, of a trilogy of novels. The first one is called Black Sun um, that came out uh, the year before last. It was one of the Economist's top 10 um, thrillers of the year and uh, the Financial Times as well. And uh, although it's not financial, it's, <laughs> and the Red Traitor is the second volume. It's, uh, it's coming out this week. And it's a trilogy of uh, novels set around real events in the early 1960s. The first one, Black Sun, is based uh, on the true life story of the building of uh, RDS-220, also known in the West as the Tsar bomb, the biggest thermonuclear device ever created uh, in a secret city in uh, the Soviet Union. And it was detonated in October 19, uh, 1961. And the real life story is that its creator, Andrei Sakharov, 10 days before the bomb is about to drop, realized that he had a team working on projecting the destructiveness of this device and actually came up with a very real theoretical possibility that he would, this bomb would set the world's uh, atmospheric hydrogen on fire so that he, was, that he could 
accidentally burn the world, absolutely literally. And he changes the design of the bomb 10 days before it drops. It is in a, in a solid uranium case, 22 tons of uranium metal. He swaps it for, for lead is obviously less reactive and thereby the bomb is actually just a mere four and a half thousand times uh, more powerful than Hiroshima blows out windows 900 kilometers away in Finland but otherwise does not destroy the world and that true story is the fiction is the background for my fiction wow red traitor is, is uh about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's, about, uh, it's a fictionalization of the Oleg Penkovsky story and the story of B-59, the uh, submarine, nuclear-armed submarine that did not fire its nuclear torpedo at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The third one is about the Kennedy assassination. So it's a sort of, uh, I hope, Robert Harris-style fictionalization sort of woven around real events. That sounds amazing. I confess I haven't read the first two, but I'm, I'm going to go out and buy them on Amazon now. Pankowski, I, I should have you back to, to talk about him. An amazing case study in, in intelligence gathering and uh, double agentry. Anyway, Owen, I know you have to dash. You've got other uh, more important things to do, but I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. This was like one of the, the best discussions I think we've had on the program, uh, at least in, in recent memory. And we must have you back for the third installment of your, your spy novel trilogy. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. I, you, you seem like a polite person, so I will never know the truth, but I'll, I'll accept your compliment on that. <laughs> it's very kind. I mean, I yeah, you know, I, <laughs> the compliment was basically embodied in the invitation to come on and talk, so it's, it's not the idle flattery if that's what you're worried about. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate it. Cheers. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. We'll see you next time.